You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We you turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, please? Chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we will begin reading at verse 35. And we'll read to the end of verse 42 together. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which is translated Peter. Let's pray together. Our Father, with all that we have to be thankful for, we would not neglect to thank You for Your Word. We thank You for giving us a revelation of Yourself. We thank You for writing that revelation down. We thank You for the men and the women who have sacrificed, and many of them died, to put it into our own language so that we could have it in our laps here. It is a blessing which is the chief among all the blessings that You've given to us other than salvation. And we are grateful for it. We are grateful that we can study it. And we ask now that You would help us to that end, that as we study and as we look at Your Word, that You would be pleased to condescend here and to be our teacher this morning in our time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing that song, and it's a familiar worship chorus, If I Can Only Imagine. And I'm assuming that everybody here has heard that song and is somewhat familiar with the words. And there is a a verse in it that always sort of makes me think back to things that I thought in my own mind where the writers say, we are surrounded, surrounded by your glory. What will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah or will I be able to speak at all? And the songwriters are asking the question that maybe you have thought about in your own mind from one, at one time or another. When I stand in the presence of Christ, And that could be this afternoon. It could be before the service is over. What will I do? How will I react to such glory? What will, what will that day be like? And what will I, how will I respond to that? And I'll confess to you, there's part of me that is somewhat fearful that I won't know what to do when that instance arrives. When I'm standing there, will I want to stand out of respect for the King because you stand in the presence of, of royalty and holiness? Or will I fall down? Or will I want to do both? Do you say something? What do you say? Do you say thank you? Do you say I love you? What is the first thing that you should say? What is the protocol when you step into glory? What is the right thing to do? And what are the wrong things to do? Do you, do you jump? Do you shout? Do you, do you dance? Do you sing hallelujah? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. When I, When I worship, I am not the type of worshiper that loves to jump up and down and clap my hands and shout and sing loudly. I'm the type of worshiper that the the more I worship, the quieter I get. And I like to stand in silence. Is that what it's going to be like in eternity? 
Or is my wanting to stand in silence part of my sinfulness? And see, I'm, I have to say that part of me doesn't understand how to answer that question or what that's going to be like because I'm trying to evaluate that moment from the confines of my own fallen sinfulness. And I half suspect that when I'm unshackled from this body of sin and death, and I stand in the presence of the Holy One where there is no sin, where there is no death, where I can't do anything wrong, that however it is that I respond will be the right response, right? So maybe it doesn't do me any good to ask the question, what will I do? Whatever I do, as long as it's not tainted by sin, will be the right thing. I don't think we'll be able to respond the wrong way. And sometimes I ask myself, what's that going to be like? And other times, and probably more often, I ask myself this question. If I had stood in His presence when He was here in His incarnation, what would that have been like? How would I have responded then, 2,000 years ago, when He was here in His full humanity, the glory was for the most part veiled by human flesh, When I, if I had met Him 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, say in the temple, what would I have thought and how would I have responded? Would I have been like, for instance, Simeon, who when he saw the baby Jesus said, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He was filled with the Spirit and he recognized the Messiah even as an infant and praised God for the birth of the King. Or would I have been like the one man who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Or would I have found myself among the crowd who uh, sort of followed Jesus when it was convenient, when He was feeding the multitudes and they got to see the signs and the miracles and it was the popular thing to do. But then, like that crowd in John chapter 6, when Jesus said some things that were a bit too tough, they walked with Him no more and they left Him. Would I have been among that crowd? Who followed Him for a while until what He said became really hard and then left Him? Or would I have been among the crowd who said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Glory in the highest. And then five days later said, crucify Him, His blood be on me and our children. Would I have been in that crowd? Or would I, God forbid, have found my place among the Sadducees and the Pharisees who had the Son of God executed? How would I have responded to Him? Now, see, I have a hard time answering that question too. And, and here's why. Now on this side of it, I have the revelation of the New Testament and I'm saved. And I have a hard time saying, how would I have responded back then before I knew what I know now? So I can't really answer the question, what will it be like? What will my response be? Nor can I really answer the question, what would my response have been like to meet Him in the flesh? Scripture gives all kinds of encounters between Jesus and people when they first met Him. Some of those encounters are very instructive. They're actually warnings for us. They kind of help us to see the spiritual effects of sin and spiritual blindness. And they are warnings to us of what, of what pride and self-righteousness will do. Some of the encounters in Scripture between Jesus and people are instructive to us because they give us some insight into those people and also some insight into the Son of God Himself. And at the end of John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, Jesus encounters five of the twelve disciples. Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. He's also called Bartholomew. Those five disciples for the first time. And so now, having introduced sort of the twelve last week, today we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with the first of His two disciples, Andrew and John. So let's pick it up in John chapter 1, verse 35. And what we'll do is we're going to look at the two today, and then next week we'll look at Peter, because Peter is really sort of an interesting character all on his own, and then we will look at Philip and Nathaniel 
later in the chapter. Verse 35, again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now you can tell verse 35 sort of sets these events off from the rest of the chapter because of that designation the next day. Remember, several weeks ago, many weeks ago actually, I told you that John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19 and going through the end of John chapter 2 verse 11, details for us the first week of Jesus' ministry. After His temptation in the wilderness, which was after His baptism, Jesus came back to where John was baptizing. And verse 19 is the events of the first day when the Pharisees send a delegation out to ask John, who are you? What are you doing? And are you the Christ? And if not, why are you baptizing? On the next day, verse 29, that's day two, that is when John saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the next day, which is day three, begins in verse 35, where John has two of his disciples with him. Then there is the next day, verse 43, and then John chapter 2 starts three days later, which is the seventh day. So we have this first week. So this now is day three. Day three of these encounters. And John is standing with two of his disciples, and I've already tipped my hat last week, as to who I think those two disciples are. One of them in verse 40 is identified as Andrew, Peter's brother, Simon Peter's brother. The other one remains unnamed, not only in this chapter, but I think he remains unnamed for the rest of the book. And I told you last week that I think that that is none other than John, the apostle, the son of thunder, uh, brother of James, the author of this gospel. And throughout church history, commentators and historians are almost universally agreed that John is the one who is here unnamed. And here's why. There's good reason for it. First, John, in all the Gospels, and including this one, is always very closely associated with Andrew and Peter and his brother James. You remember the groups of the disciples that I mentioned last week? The first group is Peter. He's the head of that group. And he has, so you have Peter and Andrew and James and John in that first group. John was always closely associated with Peter and Andrew and his brother James, not only in the lists of the apostles, but also in all of their activities. They lived in the same town, probably attended the same synagogue. They had a fishing business together. They fished together. They spent time together. When Jesus finally calls them to follow Him full time, Andrew and James and John and Peter, they're all together fishing in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. So there's a close association between John the Apostle and Andrew, who I think he is with here in John chapter 1. Also, this whole, this whole chapter, and especially these verses, have a very eyewitness flavor to them. You notice the detail that these things happened at the tenth hour? Later on in verse 39, these things happened at the tenth hour. That's an eyewitness detail. That's the type of detail when you're reading a historical count and they can name for you the time at which this happened. It kind of indicates that the individual who's telling you this was an eyewitness to these things. And also, the fact that a lot of the detail with John the Baptist and everything he said and the people who came and the things that he said to them and who was with them at the time, all of that has a very eyewitness flavor to it. And this unnamed disciple remains unnamed through the whole Gospel. I think this is John, the Apostle, who appears here. He remains unnamed and he's giving to us eyewitness testimony. So, without any good argument as to not think that this is John, I will assume that this is John. So, from here on out, we're talking about John, that is, the brother of James, son of thunder, the author of this Gospel, and Andrew. They were disciples of John the Baptist. And there was the next day, this is the third day, the day after Jesus had arrived back and John had declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. I'm not worthy to loosen his sandal strap because he has such 
supreme value and worth, it is on the next day that John, and in my mind I'll tell you how I picture the scene unfolding. John, the Baptist, is standing with uh, Andrew and John the disciple, and Jesus is walking amongst the crowd with the people. The people are there to see John the Baptist baptized and following John's teaching. And John says, and it seems intended for the sake of these two, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, he said this just the day before, didn't he? Now, did John and Andrew need to be told twice, or were they just not there the day before? Or was John, who had said this to a larger group, singling them out and saying, John, Andrew, he is the one. And what is their immediate response? They saw Jesus, and they left John, and they followed Jesus. Now, listen, that is the exact response that John the Baptist was going for. That's why he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Hey, guys, he's the one. He's the one. And they saw Jesus, and they understood what John was getting at. He is the one who is greater than John. And so they do the most logical, the most rational, the most common sense thing they could do. They leave the lesser to follow after the greater. Now, isn't that what they came out to John for in the first place? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And they had heard John for perhaps weeks, maybe months, saying to them, there's one coming, there's one coming, he's coming, this one is greater than I, he existed before I, he is of such surpassing value and worth that I'm not even worthy to perform the lowliest act of service to him. He existed from eternity past. The Messiah, the King, the coming one, he's on his way. And they would have every day waited and waited and they were with John. They were learning from John. They were hearing him do that. They had been baptized with a baptism of repentance. They had recognized that they were sinners. And then when John finally says, this is the one, that's it. The decision's been made. We follow him, not John. And John was completely content to allow them to leave him and follow after Jesus. Why? John chapter 3 says, because uh, John said, I must decrease and he must increase. So as Jesus steps onto the stage, John the Baptist steps back out of the spotlight to allow Jesus to have his position, to allow Jesus to have the preeminence. And you'll notice from this point forward, John the Baptist hardly ever mentioned. He's mentioned again in John chapter 3, but he just, just sort of fades from the scene. That was his job. All of those guys who had gathered around John to tap them on the shoulder and say, follow him, he's the one. And as people left John, he was content to just fade into the background, and that's what he did. Now, this is not the point at which Andrew and John became full-time followers of Jesus. Remember, we covered that last week. That's not going to happen for another 18 months, halfway through that three-year period of Jesus' ministry. That's when Jesus will, in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6, single out those four brothers and say, come follow me, and they leave their nets, and they leave their business and their family and all their friends and everything, and follow Jesus full-time. This is not their calling to be full-time disciples, nor is this their calling to be apostles. This is their calling to conversion. Why are they coming to Jesus? They are coming to Him because He is the Lamb of God who will take away their sin. And they've repented of their sin. They know that they're sinners. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. And they're coming to Jesus not because they have seen Him do any miracles. Remember, He has performed no sign as of yet. He has not fed any multitudes. He has not walked on water. He has not healed anybody. He has not yet even turned the water into wine, which John says was the first of His miracles. He hasn't done any of those things. 
So when they come to Christ, they're not coming for any benefits. They're coming to Jesus because He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is their conversion. They know that they need somebody to bear their sin. They know that they need somebody to deal with the sin issue. That's why they were with the Baptists to begin with. Repenting and turning from their sin and preparing for the Lord who would come and deal with their sin. And so then when John says, this is the one who will deal with your sin, they follow after him. This is John's conversion and this is Andrew's conversion. And they begin to follow Jesus. Now the the dialogue that takes place between Jesus and these two is very interesting. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? What do you seek? That is a piercing question, is it not? Why are you coming to me? What are you after? What is it that you want from me? Do you want me to do something for you? What Jesus is doing is really getting to their motives for coming to begin with. Now, did Jesus not know their motives? He knew their motives, right? He's omniscient. You see this all the way through John chapter 1. He gives Peter, he renames Peter because he knows Peter's future. It's a demonstration of his intimate knowledge with Peter. Later on, he demonstrates that he knew Philip, and he demonstrates that he knew Nathaniel, even Nathaniel's innermost thoughts and intention and motives. Jesus knew men, which is why at the end of John chapter 2, verse 25, it says he didn't need anybody to testify to him about men because he knew what was in man. He knew the hearts of men. So why does John ask, Jesus ask them, what do you seek? What are you after? Is Jesus fishing for information that he didn't have? He's most certainly not. You know what Jesus is doing? He is wanting them to realize what they're after. He knows why they're there. He wants them to evaluate why they're there and to answer that question on their own. What am I seeking? Jesus knew that not all people who followed Him followed Him for the right reasons. There are right reasons to come to Jesus and there are wrong reasons to come to Jesus. And Jesus knew that many of the people in His day, and it's the same today, follow after Him for all of the wrong reasons. You see it in John chapter 6 when Jesus says to the multitudes, You're not seeking me because of a sign that I did. You know why you're seeking me? You're seeking me because you ate the bread and the loaves and you were filled. I filled your stomach. And that's why you're here. And when he fed the crowd, you know what the crowd said? Hey, he's our Messiah. Free food. That's better than free health care. That's the best deal in town. That's a Messiah we can follow after. And Jesus pinpoints their motives and says, you're not after me because you saw the sign. And you're not seeking me because of who I am. You're following me because I filled your stomach. And you're after the free food. And later on in John chapter 6, Jesus gives an exposition of really what their motive was and why they were coming. And He says some things to them that were so hard that those very same people said, no, enough of this. I followed up to this point. Now you're sounding like a lunatic. Now you're saying some really hard things. I'm done. I'm going back to fishing. I'm going back to tax collecting. I'm going back to whatever I was doing before. Because Jesus knew that not everybody follows Him for the right reasons. Some of them came because that was the popular thing to do. The crowds came out to hear John the Baptist. Then when John the Baptist faded from the scene, Jesus was the new show in town. And the crowds came out to see Jesus. And the crowds came out to hear Him. And the crowds became so massive that Jesus couldn't even move sometimes. And they brought the sick to Him and the multitudes were being healed. And they wanted to see the signs. And they wanted to hear Him teach. And they wanted to watch what He would do next because He was a great show in their eyes. But they came for all the wrong reasons. One of the plagues of modern day evangelism is that our evangelism, we give people all the wrong reasons for coming to Jesus Christ. 
We tell them, if you come to Jesus, he'll make you happy, healthy, wealthy, fix your marriage, fix your job. He'll give you a better boss. He'll give you uh, more obedient kids. He'll give you better parking spaces all the time. You'll have favor all the time. He'll provide all for all of your needs and everything you ever wanted or thought you could want. Jesus will give it to you. And I know that you've got a God-shaped hole in your heart. And if you just come, God will fill that hole. And you should come because God has a man-shaped hole in his heart. And it won't just be great. You'll work it all out together and just come to Jesus and you'll be happy. And people come to Jesus and they put on Jesus for a period of time. They give the Jesus thing a whirl and they find out that he didn't fix their marriage. Now it got worse because they're living with an unbeliever. And they're trying to live a holy life and this person's not committed to Christ at all. And they find that their kids don't respond any better to them now that they're a Christian and they have higher standards than they did when they were a pagan and they had lower standards. And they still have the same cantankerous boss. And I'm not talking about their spouse. I mean the person that employs them. God didn't change the spouse and they're not getting any better parking spaces. And so what do they do with Jesus? They throw him off and say, I gave the Jesus thing a whirl and it didn't make me healthy. It didn't make me wealthy. It didn't make me wise. It didn't fix all my problems. Will Jesus fix your marriage? Maybe. Maybe not. That's not what the gospel offers. Will Jesus make your kids more obedient? Maybe. Maybe not. But that's not what the gospel offers. You know why I came to Jesus? For the one thing that I knew I needed more than anything else. Forgiveness. That's it. And He delivered on that promise. I didn't come to Christ to be more popular in school. I didn't come to Christ to have more possessions. I didn't come to Christ to be happier. I didn't come to Christ to to get a better job or get a better position. None of that. Because He didn't offer me any of those things. He offered me forgiveness. And when I came for forgiveness, He paid up on what He promised. And He has given me forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but everything else. It's more than forgiveness that we get, isn't it? We get forgiveness, we get a home in heaven, we get adoption, we get regeneration, we get the Holy Spirit, we get spiritual gifts, we get a church family. We get all of those blessings, those spiritual blessings which are ours in Christ from eternity past. All those become ours when we believe on Christ. But all of that's gravy because all I came for was the forgiveness. That's what He offered and that's what the Gospel offers. Forgiveness. So I ask you, why did you come to Christ? What were you seeking? Did you come to Jesus because He offered the one thing that you knew you needed more than anything else, and that was forgiveness from your sins? Did you come because He's the Lamb of God who died in your place to take away your sin? Or did you come to Jesus because He was, in your mind, a heavenly Dr. Phil who would load your life with all kinds of benefits and fix all of your problems? Why did you come? And what were you seeking? That's what Jesus is asking them. What were you seeking when you came to Me? What are you after? Why do you want to follow Me? And I love their response. Rabbi, where are you staying? What? What kind of a response is that? I read that and I thought to myself, are they avoiding his question, not answering his question, or are they answering his question? But what type of a response is that? Jesus said, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? And they answered Jesus' question with a question of their own. And so I started to ask myself, what is it that they're getting after? And one of three things is true. Number one, they are dismissing his question and paying it no attention whatsoever. And they're just simply saying to themselves, we're not interested in answering your question. We have questions for you. You need to answer them. That would be a very arrogant, prideful approach. I don't think that's at all what's going on. Second, and this is what most people suggest, that they, in the presence of such a great one, were overwhelmed by the reality of who they were talking to and what they knew to be true about him from what the Baptist had said. And so they are, like in my imaginary scenario at the beginning, very unsure what to say. And so when Jesus says, what do you seek? They said to him, uh, uh, 
where are you staying? As if they just don't know how to answer it, and they feel awkward in being asked a question, and they're just not sure what to say to him to begin with, because they're a bit intimidated and uneasy in his presence. That's possible, but I think there is a third option. And A.W. Pink in his commentary on the Gospel of John says this, He suggests that in reality they do answer his question. Let me give you the two questions. First, Jesus' question and their question back to him. Let me emphasize something in each question. I think you'll see the connection. Jesus said to them, what do you seek? And they said back to him, where are you staying? Now, do you see that connection? Jesus is saying, what are you after? And they are answering, we're not after the what. We're after you. We want you. We're not coming because you're offering us benefits. We're not offering coming because you're offering us thrones in your kingdom. We're not coming because you're offering to heal our sick and raise the dead and do miracles and signs. We're not coming because we want to be more popular. What do you seek? We seek you. Where are you staying? See, that's an answer to their question, isn't it? They're saying, we're not after something. We're after someone. And you are the one. And we want Jesus because He's Jesus. We want you because you're you. Not because of what you can do for us. But because of who you are. That's the proper motive. I think the disciples here are answering Jesus' question. Jesus asks them what, and they answer with who. It's not about the what. It's about you. That's what we want. That's what we desire. Jesus knew that. They now realize that. And that's why Jesus invites them and says, come, and you'll see. Now, what they had asked for was some private time with Jesus. That's what they had asked for. We, we, we want to go wherever you're headed. We want to go there. We want to stay with you. We want to spend some time with you, away from the crowds, away from the activity, away from the Baptist. We're following you now. Can we come to where you are staying? Where are you staying? That's where we want to meet you and stay there where you're at and hear from you and learn from you. And Jesus invites them to come. And so John says in verse... Now, where are we at now? Verse 39, so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. Do you notice that John notes the exact time of the day it was? And there's some question as to whether John is using the Roman way of reckoning time or the Jewish way of reckoning time. If he was using the Jewish way of reckoning time, then you would count ten hours from sunup, which was about 6 a.m. So that would make it about 4 p.m. If he was using the Roman way of reckoning time, which is the same way that you and I reckon time, that is from midnight the middle of the night, then this would have been about 10 a.m. So it's either 10 o'clock in the morning or it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I would prefer the 10 o'clock in the morning, though if you disagree with me on this, you're not a heretic, and we can still have lunch together if you would like. We can disagree on this one. I would say it was 10 o'clock in the morning, and here's why. John notes that they spent the day with him. Now, if it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the day was basically spent. Because by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, in that culture, they were wrapping it up. They were getting done with their work for the day. They were folding their nets. They were doing away with whatever, getting ready for dinner, getting ready to settle in for the evening because as the sun would go down, they would be with the oil lamps and the candles and things like that. So they are there spend the whole day with him, which would make sense if it was 10 o'clock in the morning. Further, you'll notice that John, three times in the passage we read at the beginning, translates something for his readers, which rabbi, which translated means teacher, Christ, which translated means Messiah, uh, Cephas, which translated means Peter, You know why John is translating all of those things? Because it indicates to us that his primary audience was not a a Jewish audience. They would have understood all of that. John knows that his primary audience is Gentile, Roman, and Greek. So I think John is using, as he does later in the Gospel, demonstrably, 
the Roman way of reckoning time, 10 o'clock in the morning. What's fascinating to me is how John, the gospel writer, is able to identify the very hour that he met Jesus. I wish I could do that. I remember where I was when I got saved. It was at Coca-Cola Lake Bible Camp. I remember the building in which I was. I remember where I was seated. And to this day, when I go out there and teach or do any training at the camp, I will sometimes stand in the very location. I will tell people, this is where I was sitting when I got saved, when God saved me. It was right. I can stand in that place and I can remember what I saw. I can remember the crowd around me. I can remember who was sitting to my left, who was sitting to my right. I remember who was sitting in front of me. I remember everything about that except the day and the hour. I have no idea when my spiritual birthday was. But John was so significantly impacted by meeting Christ that he was able to pin it down right to the very hour. It was 10 a.m. 10 a.m. Do you know where you were when something significant in your life happened? If you're a believer, you ought to be able to pin it down to at least a season when you came to know Christ. Not necessarily the day or the hour. I can't identify the day or the hour. But I know when it was and I know where it was that I got saved. Why? Because when you meet Jesus, everything radically changes. And it did for John. He knew what time it was. 10 o'clock in the morning. Now what I want you to notice is how Jesus' very first words, His very first encounter with the disciples, includes an invitation. Do you see that? Come and see. Come and you'll see. Where are you staying? Come and you will see. That's an invitation. You're going to see it all the way through the Gospel of John. You see it in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. God so loved the world, verse 16, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 3, verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's an invitation. The Gospel itself is both a command and an invitation. It commands people to come to the Savior who invites them to come and receive forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take My yoke. It's light. It's easy. You'll find rest for your souls. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, or says on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood out and said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to Me. John chapter 6, Jesus said, Of all that will come to Me, I will in no wise cast any of them out. Always an invitation. Come. And the Bible over and over again through the New Testament, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, where it says, the bride and the angels say, come, let him who thirsts come. You want the water of life? Come to the Savior. Why? Because God is always inviting penitent sinners to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. What John really wants us to understand is that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in that, we might, by believing in that, we might have life in His name. And now John, at the beginning of his gospel, he says that at the end of the gospel, at the beginning of the gospel, he tells us when it was that he came to understand that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and he believed in him and got life in his name. And he came and he was invited and he got saved. Now, friends, I wish, and this is a wrong wish because it's obviously against the intentions of the Holy Spirit, but I wish that John would have recorded to us something of what Jesus and He talked about that last that night and that day. Just something. But the Spirit of God hasn't included it. And I asked myself, what did they talk about? What did Jesus say to them? What did He share with them? At the beginning of the Gospel, John says, we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so I wonder, that afternoon and that evening, as they sat there and talked to the Son of God, did Jesus reveal to them some of His glory? The glory of His attributes, His personhood, His nature. What did John see there? I can only imagine what it was, right? I don't know for certain. But whatever it was, it was convincing enough 
that John and Andrew left convinced that he was the Messiah. Because verse 40 says that he went immediately out and he found Peter, his brother, and said, we found the Messiah. Andrew was convinced that night that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that Jesus was who John the Baptist claimed he would be. And his very first natural response was to find the person closest to him and say, I have to tell you what I found. And we'll look at that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bless your name as your people. We thank you that you have determined to seek and to save that which was lost, and that was us. We thank you that you have sent such a wonderful Savior into the world to save us. We thank you that you have quickened our hearts to that end. We ask, O oh God, that we would examine ourselves and see if we are in the faith, examine ourselves to see why it is that we came to the Savior to begin with. We thank You that Your Word has the power and the ability to strip away our false notions and false expectations and to show us that the reason we come to the Savior is to be saved. We want Christ for who He is, not for what He can offer to us physically, not for the physical blessings which we might covet and long for, but for the spiritual reality of salvation from sin. We thank You for such a wonderful Savior. We thank You for all of the other spiritual blessings that attend that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.